Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. When we last visited Matthew's gospel, we touched on the word blessed. And I noted in the Greek that it's the word makarion, or makarios, which means happy, fortunate, and blissful. And how it's not the momentary joy that all human beings experience from time to time. But it's the immovable blissfulness that the world can't give and the world can't take away. It's a strong, deep conviction of being fortunate that no matter what is happening to you, that as you face your darkest hour, as the pain keeps racking within your body and you can't even sleep at night, as your finances are dwindling, you know who you belong to. And that supersedes everything. And the scriptures come to your mind to confirm that, like Romans 8, 16, uh, which says, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and there's nothing that can shake you. That's what he's speaking about when we hear the word blessed from our Lord and Savior. We also saw last time how the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God. They are truly humble and are sensible of their spiritual ignorance, their depravity and weakness, their frailty and morality, and who therefore, whatever their outward situation in life may be, even if they're exalted and affluent according to man's standards, they still think lowly of themselves. Then I spoke of how Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit, because this beatitude is the soil from which all of the other Beatitudes grow, like the one we'll be covering today, which begins, blessed are those who mourn. Because who's gonna mourn unless they realize how spiritually bankrupt they are? Our four points for this morning's sermon are point number one, blessed are those who mourn over their sins. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. And point number two, blessed are those who mourn over other Christians' sins. And point number three, blessed are those who mourn over societal sins. And point number four, blessed are those who mourn over souls who reject the gospel and are still in their sins. Follow me as I read Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, ending at verse Four. Once again, that's on page 809 in your pew Bibles. This is the holy, unchanging, and pure word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. I thank you for this grace of preaching and coming under the hearing of the word of God. Thank you, Lord God, that you have blessed us with, with, with scripture breathed from you that is so profitable, profitable, Lord God. 
for reproof and for doctrine, Lord God, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Please work in us, Lord. Please use this word to change us. And please speak through me that we all would see your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Point number one, blessed are those who mourn over sins. The first part of Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, literally says, happy are those who are sad. Which sounds like a contradiction of terms or something a crazy man might say, but we know who's speaking. So it can't be a contradiction coming from a crazy man. Jesus is saying, blissful are those who mourn over sin and ungodliness because they realize they are fortunate that God has granted them eyes to see. To see what? To see that the sinful things that makes the world happy are contrary to the righteousness of God. There's this continual joy within because we know that God has taken us off of that road, that wide road that leads to destruction where there are many people. That's where the party's at. That's where the crowds are running to with every new wind of the culture that says this is what you should be doing. God has taken us off of that road by opening our eyes to see that this road is going to hell, leading me to death. God has done that within, and he has placed us on the narrow road where there are not many, where it may not be fun at times, where we do those things that's, that are contrary to the world, and we may seem a little um, nervous as if we're doing the right thing, or am I being fooled into following this, 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 this uh, 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 handicapped way of living because I need a crutch in life but then we come back to the word and we come back to God's people and we come to the, to, the, to the throne of God and we say, yes, God, I know that I know you because of how you work within me and what you're doing in my life. And we praise him. And I want you to notice that Jesus is not saying that blessed is everyone who mourns over everything. This morning must not be taken for that feeling which comes from the ordinary pressures of life or sorrow or even sickness that may end up in death. Once again, it's that mourning which stems from being poor in spirit. The original word that Jesus used for mourning is penthuntes. Penthuntes. And it's the strongest, most severe of all the Greek words used in the New Testament and in the LXX for the Old Testament. Uh, that, that, that conveys a deep inner agony, not just an external moment of sadness. For example, it is used in Mark chapter 16, verse 10, to describe the deep mourning and anguish that the disciples felt once Jesus was crucified on the cross. Then it's used twice in Revelation chapter chapter 18, to describe the incredible anguish and agony that those who love the wealth of this world experienced on that day when they watched as all of their riches and possessions were taken away in a moment. 
With that said, I want you to notice the connection and the difference between the first beatitude and the second beatitude. The first beatitude concerning the poor in spirit is the intellectual response to our spiritual bankruptcy before God, while the second beatitude, mourning, is the emotional response to our spiritual bankruptcy. In both conditions, God says we are blessed in the midst of our poverty and our mourning. Unlike criminals who mourn when they're arrested or corrupt politicians who mourn their loss of power or adulterers who mourn after they're caught. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn over acts of unrighteousness and not because they were caught in acts of unrighteousness. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, page 967 in your pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 8, page 967 in your pew Bibles. After the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for certain sins, and I won't even say all of the Corinthians, of course not, but many of them were living contrary to the word of God. And after he rebuked them, they mourned, and they were grieving over their ungodly ways. And Paul said that he regretted grieving them, but not really. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, uh, verses 8 through 11, he wrote, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were, re you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. How beautiful is that? When someone is grieved into turning from sin towards Christ. Continuing, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, <clears throat> for godly grief <clears throat> produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Ultimately, ultimately, Paul did not regret sending the letter, even though it caused them sorrow because he saw how that sorrow over their sin affected in them repentance, which placed them in right relationship with God. And that's what we always desire. That's what we should always crave, right relationship with with the Lord God. For instance, when my family and I were in Georgia for Thanksgiving, right, everybody was there except my oldest son, Audley, right? And a few days before Thanksgiving, I asked him if he would be able to make it, but he wasn't sure, right? Fortunately, at the last minute, he was able to make some arrangements where he joined us, or he would be able to join us, but he and I wanted it to be a surprise. The difficulty would be that 
I would need to go and get him from the airport, which was an hour and a half in one direction, without my wife growing suspicious. Right? How do I, how do, I do that? Right? And I was the only one who was available to pick him up. I know. I'll tell her that I need to go back to the range to get some more practice. All right? Yes, that's it. But when the time came to pick him up, little did I know that I would spend three hours sitting in traffic on the outside of Atlanta International Airport because some genius thought it was a good idea to bring a loaded handgun into the airport, which accidentally went off. And I'm sitting there, and I can't believe it, right? Um, the, the, the problem is, it was a nightmare, but worse than that, worse than that is over the next few weeks, I was grieved. I was grieved at how easy it was for me to lie about where I was going. I was brought to the point during those three weeks or so where I had to sit down and think about how I could have handled that situation in a way that was honorable, honorable to God. And why would I do that? Because feeling remorse for a sin and actually turning from a sin are two different things. We can feel remorse every time we sin, but unless we have a change of mind that brings a change in our actions, we aren't truly broken. We're not really, really mourning over our sin. That's the type of mourning that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Mourning that brings repentance. When it comes to sin and strongholds in our lives, we can no longer say, I can't help it. Not when 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that he who is in us in you is greater than he who is in the world. We don't have to do anything we don't want to do. By the grace and power of God, we are able to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why look inside, right? right? The world says, well, look inside. Look at, you, look, look at your makeup and build your strength from within you. No, that brings sin. It always brings sin. It's been bringing sin. It's not going to change in the future. You look inside, you find sin and death and no good thing. Let us never become so hardened in our hearts that not only do we fail to weep over our wickedness, but we continue in them as if it's just who I am. I got it from my father. We've always been like that. He got it from his father. That's just who I am. No. No. Whether nature or, well, that's how I was raised, or nurture. You are born again. So don't even get into that argument. You were born again for a purpose. Praise the Lord God. That's what saints of God do. Right? We own up to our sin. We don't get into blame shifting. We follow the pattern of Christ who said, listen, I am going to live this life in holiness for your sake. We follow the pattern of godly people uh, like, like, like Job who said, I am vile and I abhor myself. Or Isaiah who declared, woe is me for I am undone. 
Or Peter who cried, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Or Paul who cried out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And also stated, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And even Luther, who thought the Pope and the Cardinals were wicked, he proclaimed, I am afraid more of my heart than the Pope and all the Cardinals. This is what godly mourning looks and sounds like. Contrition, confession, and repentance. Contrition, confession, and repentance. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul did regret having sent his severe letter for a brief time, fearing that that letter was too harsh and that he might have driven them further away from them, which no faithful pastor ever wants. But then in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul responding to their newfound repentance says, therefore we are comforted. And he's saying that while they were in sin and unrepentant, they were mourning. They were hurting. They were grieved. But once they turned, then Paul and those with him were comforted. Which brings us to point number two. Blessed are those who mourn over Christians in sin or over other Christians' sins. Let's look at James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, uh, page 1013 in your pew Bibles. James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, page 1013 in your pew Bibles. It reads, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wow, that's hard language. Well, how do I do that, James? Verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Can you be more clearer, James? Be afflicted and miserable over your moral failures, is what he's saying. Why? Going back to verse 8. So that you may draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. God will not turn away a heart that is broken, a heart that weeps over sin. Then James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The Greek word for laughter that James uses is gelos, G-E-L-O-S. And it is only used here in the New Testament in the entire New Testament. And the word signifies the flippant laughter of those foolishly indulging in worldly pleasures. It's speaking of people who give no thought to God, life, judgment, sin, death, or holiness. It's like those today who all they care about is social media always on their phone, checking their news feed, or, or even worse, they're spending every day, all day, on either TikTok, Instagram, or, or Facebook, slash Meta. How many likes did I get? 200, wow! Whoop-de-doo! Who cares? The next day, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. James called on God's people to be different to be serious about the kingdom and holiness of God, to actually mourn over sin because mourning 
reflects the heart of God towards sin and should also reflect the heart of God's people towards sin. In Ezra chapter 10, we see that, right? Ezra mourned over the sins of God's people when they insisted on marrying people who had no love for God. Ezra knew that being unequally yoked would move the people of God away from God since bad company corrupts good character. That's one of the major themes throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Bad company corrupts good character. The sons of God, and y'all know this, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. What happened next? Widespread depravity and a worldwide flood. Death. When God's people were to enter the promised land, he told them to remove all the inhabitants of the land lest they should worship their gods. Did they listen? Nope. What happened next? Massive assimilation, massive depravity, and massive death. Jeremiah the prophet grieved over the wickedness of the people, but his warnings went in one ear and out the other. So he often responded to Judah's rebellion with tears of mourning. In Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 15 to 17, he wrote, hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. The last warning, which is addressed to us, is from Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4. It says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you take part in her plagues, lest you share in her plagues. Show of hands. How many of you cringe whenever you hear of someone who was caught in a, some, some scandal and they're a Christian, right? Right? I'm like, why? Just leave that part out, right? Nobody has to know. Nobody else has to. Just, just leave that part out. Years ago, Steve Garvey, a professing Christian, and former baseball star for the last Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres had his fans believing that he was a clean-cut Christian. They even called him Mr. Clean, but his teammates called him Mr. Phony. Why is that? Well, first, Garvey left his wife and two children and became engaged with a second woman who claimed to be pregnant by him. So in his mind, he was going to do the Christian thing and marry her. Then just before the wedding day, Garvey left her and decided to marry a third woman. When that became public, a fourth woman claimed that Garvey had fathered her child that she recently gave birth to. When he was asked to comment on these accusations, 
He said, if the children are mine, I'll live up to my moral obligations, which I feel strongly about because I am a Christian. Then when he was asked, this is from the media, they said, why, they asked, why don't you seem embarrassed or disturbed by all these affairs? Garvey said that God has a purpose in everything that happens to us. I'm like, why? Why, why take God's name in vain and drag it through the mud? That was more than cringeworthy. He didn't have a clue of what it meant to mourn biblically. Both his sin and his indifference to his sin brought shame to the name of Christ. So how do we respond when we hear something like that? Some Christians respond with angry tirades and name-calling that does nothing to further the cause of Christ. But many weep, as Jeremiah did, since the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. We also mourn over them because they, some of them, truly believe that they are Christian. Yet they've been deceived by the evil one. They truly believe they're on their, their way to heaven, but from the fruit they're producing, there is a strong possibility they will hear Jesus tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Because they, they, they gave their life over to walking in the lust of the flesh and enjoying the sins of the culture or society. Which brings us to point number three. Blessed are those who mourn over societal sins. Over societal sins. Although we are the ecclesia, meaning the called out ones, we are still impacted by what happens within the world. Even though we know the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, according to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. And even though we know that the wickedness of man is great throughout the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5, it doesn't mean we don't mourn when we see evil taking place. When we see murder and senseless violence on the news, we mourn. When we see the moral fabric of our society being shred to pieces, we mourn. If you notice this verse, blessed are those who mourn, notice that it's emphatically present tense and ongoing. It's not speaking of those who once or twice a year have a moment of mourning as they're reading the newspaper, sipping on their mocha latte. Rather, it pertains to those who have a continual sense of the wickedness that blankets the world we live in and groan often. This is consistent with Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 26, where Paul talks about this world's bondage to corruption and our groaning inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. We ought to never get over our internal warnings to mourn. That thing within us that says, it's not supposed to be like this. This isn't right. But unfortunately, 
some of the things we allow into our hearts, some of the things that we imbibe have a way of affecting us and giving the other team small victories, small victories. For example, some of the comedy shows we watch on television have us laughing when we should be mourning. When that happens, Satan has won a victory because we have laughed at sin where we should have grieved over the promotion of sin, the softening of sin, the normalization of sin. If the wicked one can get us to laugh about sin, we're one step down that path towards the acceptance of sin. So we must be so very careful of what we watch and what we allow our children to watch. In Psalms chapter 119 and verse 136, the psalmist writes, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And Jeremiah once more said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 1. Some will say, it's not that serious, Pastor Mike. Maybe it's because they're unaware that the stronger paganism and sin grows within a society, the more hated Christianity becomes in the hearts of the people who embrace that society. According to the Center for the Study of World Christianity, the Center for the Study of World Christianity, in 2016 alone, roughly 90,000 Christians were slaughtered just because they say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. And that's worldwide. So it is that serious. Piece by piece, block by block, the wicked one is having his victories throughout the world. We have to mourn. It is time to weep over sin. In Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel chapter 9, in one of Ezekiel's visions, God has an angel go through the city of Jerusalem, marking the foreheads of those who mourned with sighs and groans over all of the abominations that were being committed in the city. Then when it was time for judgment, all those who had the mark of God due to their mourning over the abominations of the city were spared. Everyone else was slaughtered. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and a part of verse 2. If you will, please go there with me for a minute. Isaiah 61, beginning at verse 1, page 620 in your pew Bibles. I want you to take note of this prophecy this prophecy concerning those who mourn and what will happen on the day of God's vengeance. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. When Matthew tells us that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he's aligning with Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy that those who mourn will receive the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He went on to say, those who mourn will also receive the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, which means we're going to wear our praise like a garment. It's not going to come and go based on how we're feeling that day. We're going to worship God regardless. Do you see the connection between mourning and worship? Just as mourning is the appropriate response to sin, so worship is the appropriate response to the perfections and righteousness of God. Our worship shouldn't be based on our experiences, our disappointments, our pain, our failed dreams, or our relationships, or lack of intimate relationships, our sicknesses, our careers, or lack of income, or our spouses, or our children. Our worship should be based on the perfections and righteousnesses or righteousness of God, period. Just as it would be wrong to experience and confront sin and not mourn, it would be just as wrong to come face to face with the righteousness of God and not worship. The world in general experiences sin and doesn't mourn. But for us, how painful is it when we tell our family and friends about the saving power of Jesus personally and they consistently refuse to hear anything we have to say about the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. This brings us to point number four. Blessed are those who mourn over souls who reject the gospel and are still in their sins. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38, Jesus mourned, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her or sent to it. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus mourned over a city that was too deceived to mourn for itself. He said they were a city that killed the prophets even by stoning them. Yet they thought they were a blessed city because of how God established them in the beginning. The problem is their wickedness began almost from the day they were established. And it continued 
right up to the day Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus and the Roman army in 70 AD, which is what Jesus said would happen. He prophesied that that would happen roughly 40 years before it happened. The only time previous to that uh, when the nation wasn't overrun with wickedness is when God threw them into exile. Then the land had its Sabbath rest for 70 years. Before that, the prophet Hosea warned them when he said the land mourns because of your sin and because of the consequences that have come upon this land as a result. Hosea 4 verse 3. Jesus said, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus isn't referring merely to the time after his incarnation, specifically the last three years of his life, that he would have gathered them. But as the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, even from everlasting, Jesus is the man who wrestled with Jacob all night and the rock who led them in the wilderness and the commander of the Lord's army who spoke to Joshua the night before they conquered Canaan land the promised land. Jesus was always there to gather their children as a hen gathers her brood, but they were so evil, they continually killed the prophets that God would send them and often denied their children the opportunity to learn and love the true God and his son. To them, he said, your house is left to you desolate. A few days prior to that statement, Christ had referred to the temple as his father's house in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 13. But on that day when Christ left the temple, the glory of God went with him. After Jesus told them that their house is desolate, he walked out of the temple and he stood upon the Mount of Olives and he gave a two chapter discourse, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, detailing not only Israel's destruction, but also the end of the world upon his return. The beautiful house of God in Jerusalem, the place where God tabernacled at one time with his people was now disowned. It was just their house and it was left desolate. He who would have filled it was going from them. How sad, how sad it is to look at our loved ones being deceived by the emptiness of this life day after day after day. And we mourn. We mourn as we watch them grow old and weakened by this disease or that disease if they should make it to an older elderly age. But eventually we mourn as we watch them die in sin and misery, especially if they've rejected the gospel that we shared with them personally time and time again. Unfortunately, many of our family and friends have fallen for the popular notion that people are basically good. And this false belief has opened the door to another lie that all people go to heaven unless you're mega evil, like Hitler and about 12 other people. Besides that, everybody else is going to heaven. If only they believed Paul's words in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. When he wrote, by one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So how do you convince people? who think most people are basically good, that in reality, they and every other human being who ever lived except the Lord Jesus Christ are going to die in their sin because they are spiritually bankrupt unless they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was perfect, the one who came to die. How do we get them to see that they are spiritually bankrupt along with the rest of humanity and should be mourning over sin instead of rejoicing in sin and even giving approval to those who practice abominable sins? Prayer. Prayer. Oh, you thought I was going to say something new and clever. Right? You thought I was going to come up with this new way. The word of God informs us the prayer of a righteous person has a little power, has great power as it is working. Then it tells us, verse 17 of James chapter 5, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If we think anybody is too far gone to be prayed for, we don't have to try and search for some extreme example of God's saving power, looking through the Bible, looking at Ahab, looking in the past, looking across the street. All we have to do is look in the mirror. All we have to do is reflect on how we used to love our prideful, lustful, greedy, covetous, self-gratifying, and self-satisfying ways and think, what happened? God happened. Somebody prayed for us. Even Jesus Christ himself in John 17 prayed for us. In John chapter 17... Verses, seven, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the Bible, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning? If the answer is yes, then prayer still works. We are the greatest proof that prayer still works. So pray. Pray. Yes, the hardness of man's heart is tremendously calloused, which is why it's impossible, apart from God, for a man to seek God on his or her own. But with God, nothing is impossible, so pray. Apart from God, 
People don't know what it is to mourn over sins. But when the soul has been recreated or, or made new, the transformed believer now realizes that when his sin is confessed and repented of because of their new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to all those that God has placed in that person's circle, at home, on the job, on the block, the gospel is revealed to them as the cure for the disease of sin that plagues all mankind. The world is watching. For that new person, the necessary of the cross becomes paramount. For that believer, there is nothing more important than the cross. That's where their Savior died for, him, for them. That's where their sins were paid for, and they have been set free, justified, declared righteous. The gavel has banged on the desk, and they can go. No charges against them. Those who are happiest are those who mourn because of, their, because of their newfound sensitivity to sin, their newfound relationship with Christ. They now mourn out of choice. I pray that we would all obey the Spirit of God, who through the Apostle James commanded us to mourn and weep over sin. To let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. Because blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Please pray with me. Father, I bless your holy name, Lord God. I, I thank you. You deserve all of the praise. May we glorify you, not just from our lips, Lord, but with our heart, with our actions, with our life. Let us worship you. You deserve all of the worship, Lord. Let us not hold back in our worship. Let us not be nervous because someone is watching us worship. Let us not try to assimilate with the world, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. No, let us give our whole hearts to you that we may serve you as you called us to serve you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.